90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hello, everyone. I'm John Lehman. And I'm Shannon Doolin. And I'm Phoebe Cohen. That's right. We have a guest. We have Dr. Phoebe Cohen, who's at Williams with us today. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's been a nice rainy week in Oklahoma, which we certainly need in this drought this week. You guys had any snow lately, or are you about done with that? We are done with snow. <laughs> I'm very happy to say it is finally spring. There's even uh, some little flowers coming up. It's very exciting. Oh, Phoebe, those are famous last words, I just want to say. Yeah, well, that's true. It could definitely <laughs> snow again. But Yeah, when it snows next week, I'm going to blame this statement. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> the, you can still go cross-country skiing, though. Like, if you're up in the mountains, there's still snow. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good, then. <laughs> so, Phoebe, we are going to be completely out of our depth here today because you're talking to a paleomagnetist and a geophysicist. Awesome. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you study? Sure. So I'm a paleontologist. Uh, and for most people, that means sort of dinosaurs or other vertebrates, but or even invertebrates like trilobites. But I, in fact, study none of those things. Um, I study microscopic single-celled fossils from before the evolution of animals. So my work mostly focuses on the Precambrian time periods, everything before animals show up. And I work on um, single-celled organisms. So you can think of them as basically like fossilized amoeba. So they're eukaryotes, like plants and animals, but but they're single cellular mostly or microscopic. Um, And I'm really interested in the time period leading up to the evolution of animals, which saw a lot of really interesting changes uh, in the rest of the Earth system. We see really dramatic changes in ocean chemistry, atmospheric composition, um, the formation and breakup of supercontinents, all sorts of fun things going on. And so I'm really interested in the relationship between um, the evolution of complex life and what's going on in the rest of the Earth system. That sounds so cool. And the first thing as a geologist that I think of is, okay, well, fossils. you got to have sedimentary rocks. There's not a lot of Precambrian sedimentary rocks out there. (laughs) Yes. So we go where the rocks are, and that means that I've gotten to travel uh, to some pretty interesting places since I started uh, grad school. Um, So I've been to Australia and Namibia, um, and I've spent most of my time actually in Canada, Oh, okay. So Northwest Canada uh, happens to have a ton of really amazing proterozoic sedimentary rocks, but they're all like in these big mountains that are super inaccessible. So it's pretty right. uh, <laughs> tough, remote, and expensive fieldwork, um, but, but beautiful. also pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, those sound like some really good um, some really good areas. So you're working up on like the Canadian Shield, so some of the oldest sort of continents uh, that are so around. on the west. So on the western side of Canada, so more like in um, in the Yukon and Northwest okay. Territories. Okay. Yeah. So there's actually uh, like the Northwest Cordillera. So there's basically um, a ton of beautifully preserved uh, Neo Proterozoic. So for the last 1,000 right. million years ago to 543. And then Paleozoic as well. Excellent. Um, I studied, I did some paleomagnetism on some Neoproterozoic rocks in Colorado as well. Oh, cool. So these like sandstones that are injected into granites, because we have a lot of granites that are that age, right? But we don't have a lot of, um, a lot of sedimentary rocks. Yeah. And there's some in Death Valley. um, Yes. 
And then there's some in places like Newfoundland. So, you know, you just kind of go where the rocks are. <laughs> I understand that completely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so how on earth do you go about looking for such tiny fossils and trying to extract information from yeah. them? Yes, that was my question, too. So, uh, right. So you don't really know what you have until you go back to the lab. Oh. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's something sort of fun about that. And uh, <laughs> all of the rocks that we collect are also used for other purposes. So... I work closely with um, sedimentologists and stratigraphers and um, geochemists. And so um, we, you know, we collect samples for many different purposes. Um, oh. So look at carbon isotopes and other isotopic proxies and things like that. So even if the samples don't end up having fossils in them, we're still using them to understand um, something about Earth history. So basically we collect samples that we think are going to be fossiliferous, and so those um, tend to be rocks that haven't seen a lot of uh, heat or pressure or temperature, so low metamorphic grade. Um, we really like cherts, so <laughs> solidified, but, but like early, early cherts that have formed relatively early in, in the sedimentary process. Um, black shales, and then uh, carbonates, mostly limestones, although sometimes dolomites as well. Um, and so in all of those situations, we're looking for rocks that look like they haven't seen a lot of fluid flow, haven't seen a lot of alteration. And then we bring them back to the lab, and there's two, two main tacks that we take. One is to just make thin sections, so we you know, cut very thin slices of the rock, and then you can basically look right through them um, and see whatever's inside. And then the other things, we dissolve them in acid. And depending on the rock and the type of acid and the type of fossil, you end up with uh, material, fossil material um, remaining in sort of like a tube of sludge after you've <laughs> dissolved the rock. And then you look through that tube of sludge and use microscopes. And I do a lot of electron microscopy and things like that. So how do eukaryotes get preserved then? Because you always think of fossils as, you know, these hard shells and, you know, these skeleton body parts. So what do right. you see? Yeah, so some single-celled eukaryotes make hard parts. Okay. So an example that you might be familiar with from the modern would be coccolithophores. Oh, okay. Or diatoms. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, or dinoflagellates. So those are the, the three most important groups of eukaryotic plankton in the oceans today. Right. And they okay. all make resistant structures of some kind. So these so, tiny little tests or something that exactly, you can see. Okay. Exactly. So all some right, of those so. are made of organic material, mm -hmm. and some of them are made of minerals. Right. Okay, so basically sort of the same kind of thing throughout the geologic history. Exactly. Happened yeah. back that far along ago. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing this, do you go for kind of quantity sampling when you're in the field <laughs> to have the best chance when you get back to the lab? Or do you not actually not bring back that much material? We bring back a lot. I mean, in part because we're using all of the samples for carbon isotope stratigraphy as well. So we usually measure sections at a meter or half a meter resolution, depending on how long the section is. So we'll end up often with, you know, hundreds of samples. Um, oh, wow. And that's where my army of undergraduates comes in. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice contrast to Paleo Mag, where we just drill and we hope yeah. for the best. Because we also don't know until we get back to the lab. But right. that's cool right. that, you know, like you're using up all of your samples, even if you don't find a little bug floating in there, you've still got it for something else. So that's exactly. quite exactly. nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, and, and it also makes it easier to, like, get funding. Because you're like, look, even if I don't find anything, we're still going to 
get information about other things. Good point. So. Good point. I need to look into this. Absolutely. And the undergrad army is definitely useful. Uh, <laughs> I was Shannon's field assistant for yes. Paleo Mag oh. uh, many years ago and carried gallons and gallons Carrying of water. Oh, water. oh, for the drill? <laughs> for yeah, the drill, water yeah. for the drill. Yeah. Yep. And then rocks for later. So, yes, yeah, we've, I've... we've uh, there's a Harvard undergrad who's doing a thesis, a Paleo Mag thesis up in the Yukon. And it was so hard. Oh. I mean, I wasn't with her, but like she had such, they had to, you know, basically pick a spot that was close to a stream. And exactly. the elevation changes are so big that, yeah, it sounded hellish to me. So. Oh, exactly. Water is really, I mean, being near a stream is great, but we worked out in Nevada and it's like there's oh, no yeah. water anywhere. So you have to pack yeah. everything in. Yeah. So I abused John greatly and my many other undergraduates just, <laughs> just literally pack muling water. And it's, it's pretty interesting, but. That's okay. That's why we do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, VB, how did you, how did you kind of get to where you are now? I know you had a little bit of a interesting path mm, to your career. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I started off. I did my undergraduate at Cornell, and I I showed up to Cornell wanting to be a biology major, um, and I was really interested in like evolution and all this cool stuff that I had read about in National Geographic. Um, and then I discovered that the bio major at Cornell, like at many uh, colleges, was very micro-focused. Um, it was much, more, much less about organisms and much more about sort of uh-huh. genes and molecules, okay. which I found less <clears throat> intellectually compelling. So I discovered the um, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Department, which had, fortunately for me, just started a new major within the department. So there was the geo- geophysical sciences major. And then there was a earth system science major. And that was really the perfect home for me. So I was able to continue taking classes in biology, like evolution and ecology and things like that. But then I also took um, a lot of courses in the earth sciences, like oceanography and biogeochemistry and, and paleontology. Um, and I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I wasn't really psyched to go straight through. And so I kind of just <laughs> like fell into this job I had taken paleobiology with Warren Allman, who, in addition to being a professor at Cornell, runs a natural history museum in Ithaca called the Museum of the Earth. And uh, he basically just offered me a job, um, (laughs) which was awesome. So I worked there for two years, and that was really fun. I was kind of doing a little bit of everything. We were building a new museum space while I was there, which was really exciting. And I got to go to conferences and meet a lot of paleontologists, which was great for networking and also just kind of giving me a taste of grad school without having to make a commitment yet. And um, around that time, uh, Andy Knoll, who's uh, sort of the most preeminent Precambrian paleontologist, had written a sort of popular science book called Life on a Young Planet. And I got my hands on it and I read it and I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, this is exactly, I like, I want to work with this guy. This is like the only thing that's interesting to me. So I, um, I lobbied Warren uh, to uh, Warren had gone to Harvard for grad school with Stephen Jay Gould, so he knew Andy, <laughs> my advisor. Mm-hmm. So I sort of got Warren to call up Andy, and I emailed Andy, and he was like, well, I'm not really taking any graduate students next year because at the time he was involved in the Mars uh, Spirit and Opportunity mission. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so he was a little busy. Um, and I just, like, I was relentless. 
<laughs> and I just like nagged him and I like accosted him at GSA and eventually I wore I wore him down. <laughs> so I um I started grad school at Harvard um you know which had its ups and downs and 6 years later I, I when I graduated I wasn't really sure that uh, an academic life was for me. Um and I've, I'd always maintained an interest in education and outreach since working at the Natural History Museum after college. And I had continued some of that work as a grad student as well. So at the time, we were all funded through this large NASA astrobiology grant, which has as its part of its mandate an education and outreach component that they take very seriously. And so I basically, uh, again, wheedled my way into a job <laughs> by going over down the road to MIT to Roger Summons, who was the PI of the grant, who I knew pretty well. And I and he had basically the person who was doing education outreach was leaving. So I said, great, why don't you give me the job and I'll do that half time and be a research postdoc for half time. And he was like, awesome, you just solved all my problems. <laughs> so I was at MIT for two years and that was an interesting position. So I was sort of, like I said, half time running the education outreach programs for this large grant and working with a lot of um, other groups in the Boston area doing science outreach and then also working um, in Rogers lab and then also Tanya Bosak's lab who is another geobiologist at MIT Uh, and then when the Williams position came up it just felt like the really perfect place for me because uh, because of the emphasis and focus on teaching but also the ability to keep doing my research. Yeah, I mean, education outreach is becoming more and more important, and uh, seems like more people are getting involved with it, which is great. And so when you were doing this education outreach work at MIT, were you mainly targeted towards, uh, you know, school kids, or what what was your focus there? Yeah, so we had a lot of different projects. Um, A lot of the work we were doing was more informal science education, so outreach events to the public. We worked a lot with the MIT Museum and the Cambridge Science Festival, which is a big week-long science festival hosted by the MIT Museum every spring, which is actually happening right now. Um, And so we would go to like fairs and have activities. Um, We made a two-scale geological timeline along the Charles River with signs and would lead school groups on tours, but also just lead the public on tours. We worked, I worked with a program, an after-school program, focus on astronomy and we developed an astrobiology module for those students. Those are Boston public high school students uh, who basically did this after school program that was a job. They were sort of paid for it um, where they developed an exhibit on astrobiology by themselves that was then displayed at the MIT Museum. Um, And then I was also involved in some virtual field trips, which is a project that has continued on um, through uh, ASU's uh, program, astrobiology program. And so we went to Australia a couple of times and did a virtual field trip of Shark Bay, which is where there are living stromatolites, and also to the Ediacaran Hills, where, um, where the Ediacaran, famous Ediacaran fossils were first found. So those were, are now more focused towards sort of K-12 audiences, and we helped develop some educational modules to go along with those. We've talked a little bit on before on the show about these virtual field trips and how with drone technology now, we think it's going to be oh, really yeah. great to have you know these mapped outcrops from drones that you can go through. Totally. And we use a lot of gigapan uh, yeah. technology on our, on our so, which is super fun with the fossiliferous bedding planes because you can sort of zoom in and find your own fossils. 
uh, in the Bedding Plains as a student, which is really cool. So you still retain that sense of discovery even though you're not there, which I think is really critical. So gigapan photography, right, is just where you're taking a bunch of really high-resolution photos very close and then stitching them all together, kind of like a giant panorama, right? Is that overly simplified? Nope, that's basically (laughs) it. So it's basically a specialized tripod head that controls the camera's movements so that you have perfect coverage and overlap. Oh, wow, so you don't even have to do the movement of the camera. No, right, you don't move it at all. Oh. Uh, You can do it just on your own. The stitching is a little bit trickier because there's less precision, but... um, but it still generally works. Oh, wow. And this has really opened up, I mean, not just for like outreach, but I mean, I use Gigapan in my intro to, to field methods class a lot too, you know? I mean, just just like Phoebe just said, it really keeps that like discovery alive because it's such high resolution pictures that it really feels like you're there. You can do more than just say, here's this picture of Australia, you know, but like here's this bedding plane with these fossils in it and you can zoom in on it and actually see it almost like you were there. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, and, you know, obviously it's not as good as being there, but especially for <laughs> K-12 audiences where right. these kids are not, <laughs> yeah. they're not going to get to go to Australia or the Grand yeah, Canyon exactly. or wherever. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really impressive stuff. Yeah. So that uh, kind of, I guess, brings us on to the next thing. Of You said that teaching was really important to you, and that's part of what made you take this position at Williams. And so how does doing research and teaching and all of this work at a liberal arts school compared to, you know, the research institution classical that people are familiar with? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's some differences and some similarities. So at Williams, we're lucky in that our teaching load is actually not that high. So I teach three courses a year plus labs. Um, so depending on how you do that math, that's sort of <laughs> sort of like six a year, <laughs> whatever. People, you know, there's different calculus for these sorts of things. But it's, uh, it's not as high as it is at, at many other smaller schools. And that's in part because we just, we have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to be rich. Um, and uh, yeah, so that said, the student expectations are, in terms of time, are really high. So Um, We spend a lot of time with students outside of class, either in office hours or just working with them on projects. So I have students who work in my lab during the year and during the summer. Um, And so my research has to really be able to integrate undergraduates. So I mentioned earlier, like minions dissolving rocks. So I have minions (laughs) dissolving rocks right now. Um, And of course, those minions need to be trained. And they also need to get something out of the experience. Because when I say minion, that's not really fair. We don't... (laughs) You know, at Williams, we try to make sure that every research experience has some sort of intellectual um, <laughs> infrastructure to it. And so even if the students uh, aren't doing a thesis project, they um, are still intellectually engaged, and we try to include them in discussing the work. Um, and then many of them do go on to do senior theses, and, and we take those pretty seriously here. So some of them are almost master's level type projects, depending on the student. Um, And so a lot of it's just like, how do you create a project that is interesting to you, that you can do with the facilities and resources that you have, uh, and that will involve undergraduates? And luckily for me, that hasn't actually been that hard. Um, I don't require any extremely expensive or large (laughs) machines to do my job. We have a scanning electron microscope here at Williams that I get to use for free, which 
is actually a better situation than at many research universities where you pay yes. get charged by the hour. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, it's sort of ideal. Um, but then again, you know, students often will just work for you for a semester or a summer and then move on and decide they have other interests. And so you have to create projects that can handle that sort of discontinuity. I think John and I were both involved in undergraduate research projects as well, even though, you know, we were at a big state school. Um, Which is great. Yeah. It, exactly. Like, it's yeah. really invaluable. I got to go to Scotland on mine, and I actually wound up um, getting a publication out of it, too. Oh, that's awesome. So I imagine that's sort of more what happens in yes. these liberal arts universities. And it just, that's sort of, I'm a teaching uh, professor here. I'm not a tenure track. So I'm sort of, you know, doing your job, but at this big research university. Right, and it's right. just, my undergraduate researchers are so excited, and it's never too young to start them doing this research, I think. You know, they don't even need all the tools that a PhD has to start getting involved, and that's super yeah. important. Yeah, I mean, I have, I, I take freshmen, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. and they love it. And also, it's their, they, you know, some a lot of the students, most of the students get paid for it. It's their, basically their, their campus job. Exactly, so, yep, the same here. And some of them get, I took a student to the Yukon with me last year. Oh. Which was super <laughs> cool for her, and... One of the other faculty members in my department takes students to the coast of Ireland every summer. So they're pretty, they get some amazing opportunities. And I, I really enjoy working with them. They're just, yeah, they're not jaded. Exactly. <laughs> they're just enthusiastic. Um, oh, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. They're so bright-eyed and energetic. And the students here are just super, most of them are super um good at managing their time oh Not wow them, of course that's but, unusual <laughs> yeah it's unusual like williams is the kind of place where you like you don't get here unless you're sort of like have your have your act together uh, so. <laughs> that's, uh, that's wonderful that's not always true here but most of our undergrad yeah. researchers i think try pretty hard so that's good right right <laughs> and it's like you don't have to just take anybody right you know? exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and so i think uh when you were here at Penn State and we were chatting a little bit, you said that you get some really interesting uh, students from completely different disciplines that end up doing projects with you, right? I think you had mentioned oh, yeah. something about uh, like literature and all of this kind of rolling in. Uh, so how does that work? Um, well, so I had like one student who is an art major who wanted to work for me for a summer. He had taken one of my classes and he really wants to do video game design. And so he... Um, helped me create some 3D models of trace fossils, so like animal burrows. And so when animals burrow into sediment, it gets expressed as sort of like a 2D thing, right? But it's a 3D motion. So he used some of his video game software to try to model that. Um, It didn't end up really going anywhere, but it was super fun. And then uh, last week, um, I had coffee with a student who's doing an independent study where he and a friend are basically creating a fictional world for a science fiction independent study, science fiction writing course. And there we were creating a map for their fictional world. So, you know, these sci-fi fantasy books often have these amazing, beautiful, detailed maps in the sort of front page. Yeah. But he wanted to make sure that it was geologically and geographically correct. <laughs> so I got wow. to hang out with him for an hour awesome. and talk about, like, ocean currents and, like, river drainages and if you have a big mountain range you should probably have a couple rivers coming out of it and 
um, climate zones and ice sheets. Oh, it was so much fun. That's <laughs> awesome. I don't think about the geomorphology of video games, but that's right, awesome right, to think that yeah. that actually is real thought that goes into it. Yeah, and at a small school, like it just, you know, the guy who teaches this class knew me uh, just from around campus. And so he was like, oh, I bet Phoebe would be interested in this. So that's one of the things I love about being here. As I often say, the students are getting a liberal arts education, but so am I. Um, and I get to hang out with people from all across campus who work on all different sorts of things. You know, one of my best friends is a poet. Another one studies, you know, prostitution. <laughs> and so <laughs> I feel like I, I'm exposed to a lot of different disciplines. Um, and that's really fun. I think that's super important. And I think that a lot of people in these big, I mean, people, professors, grad students, everybody at these R1 universities get really focused on their one little niche that they're totally. sort of yeah. doing. And they don't understand, you know, how important things like literature could be for, number one, keeping them engaged. John and I have talked about that before as well. But number two, just actually giving them ideas for their own little niche as well. Um, I teach this class where we incorporate, like, Native American sort of stories and we use those stories to describe scientific processes. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, it's a non-majors class, but I really feel I've started to incorporate it into my actual, like, my senior-level geology classes that mm -hmm. I teach because people overlook that so frequently, the importance of, you know, the rest of their education. And I don't know if that would help with burnout or what in grad school, but I think it's an interesting thing, and I'm glad that it's sort of this whole movement to incorporate break down these barriers of western science where you know we just do geophysics we just do geology and sort of incorporate these wider ideas into our own work i think it's so important and it's just not yeah. being done or just like having students think about how something that seems so irrelevant or obtuse is actually relevant i mean you know climate's a pretty easy thing to do but in my paleobiology class i have students read a bunch of articles about fossil collecting and like black market dinosaur fossil trading and thinking about the ethics of that mm -hmm. you know and and so it's a really different way of thinking about fossils and the fossil record and what kind of value do we place on these objects and how is right. that value determined and so you know that's one of the really fun things about teaching is that you can draw connections between things that might not be straightforward but I think the students really get a lot out of it. Right, exactly. Like, I worry in my classes that I'm not covering, you know, maybe everything that was covered when I took this class or things like that. And I think these little sort of side diversions are even more important than the fact, you know, that my students have to have every single, you know, X thing about sedimentary rocks memorized. But yeah, because it all comes down to like, what's the point yeah. of a class? Right. right. And like, what are you actually trying to teach the students? Are you trying to teach them, you know, how to classify a sedimentary rock? Yes, but you're also trying to teach them how to think, how to make exactly. connections, how exactly. to analyze data. And uh -huh. at, at the end of the day, those are the things they're going to take forward with them in their lives. Right. Regardless it, of what they decide to do. Exactly right. It's like it's like tricking my kid to eat broccoli, right? Well, actually, right. he loves broccoli. <laughs> it's, it's more green beans. I don't know why. Um, and, and I feel like it's that same thing. You can tell students all day. You can talk about Bloom's taxonomy. And you can talk about developing their critical thinking skills. They don't care. But when you trick them into doing that <laughs> by presenting these things they might not be expecting in your class, I think that, you know, you just become – you're a better teacher for it. You learn more for it. And the students are leaving with these intangibles that 
are going to make them better scientists. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the more lenses that you can look at one problem through, uh, other than I mean, there's obvious areas of overlap, you know, like engineering and geophysics and that kind of thing. But there's also a lot of less obvious areas of overlap that produce some really interesting results. Like I saw a group of physicists that were producing uh, deltas in a computer model, and it was a very beautiful physics approach to it of saying, we're not going to worry about solving all of this full water flow equation business. We're going to treat it like an electrical current. Ooh. And I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting way to, to view the same problem because somebody yeah. has a totally different set of lenses coming in. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So what, what's it like in terms of getting funding to do this research since you have so many undergraduates involved? Do you go through the, you know, the same channels, NSF proposals, which uh, as we're recording, you know, is taxes and NSF deadlines uh, April 15th? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... I was really lucky in that I came here with money from NASA Astrobiology. So during my last year at MIT, I helped write a new NASA Astrobiology proposal. And these are huge. They have like 14 PIs on them or something like that. Wow. So when I got my job here, we were able to just transfer that um, oh. over to Williams, which was awesome. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> so I showed up with money. Um, but of course, that money doesn't last forever. And also, you know, in terms of getting tenure here, it is important for us to show that we're active in research, and that includes writing grants to fund our research. So I submitted an NSF grant uh, in February, February for the uh, uh, said paleo deadline. Um, but it's not, the pressure is different, right? Like. The expectation isn't that you're writing, you know, three or four grants a year. Um, and everybody understands that the funding situation is really terrible right now. And so I think there's a little more compassion towards those of us who rely on NSF for funding um, in terms of what the funding rates are and how realistic it is. And we submit, so basically what, generally what you do is you submit a regular NSF and then you have this extra um, REU components, so research, research experience for undergraduates. So it's like an extra five-page document that you write that talks about how you're going to integrate undergraduates into your project um, and how you're going to mentor them and train them and what they're going to get out of it and things like that. So the expectation is that this project will involve undergraduates in sort of all of the steps um, and that there'll be thesis projects coming out of it and things like that. So. Um, there is a little extra thing that you can do. And it's not clear to me if that improves your chances or not, but um, it does sort of set your proposal apart from, from non-REU proposals. Yeah, I think that and, you know, just having good, solid, broader impact sections that go beyond, I'm going to have grad students. Exactly. It's really becoming more important, especially yeah. when the funding rates are what they are. Yeah, and that's a big thing. You know, we talked a lot about that when I was at MIT, how how that situation has really changed. And I even when I was considering leaving academia, I thought I might become a freelance uh, broader impacts consultant. Um, <laughs> and because, I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, we're trained to be scientists. We're not trained to be educators. We're not trained to be community outreach leaders. So I think that uh, it's been really challenging for people to figure out what to do and how to do it. I think it's getting a lot better. Um, I think NSF's been a little better about being more clear. And I think that institutions have been better about um, helping 
PIs uh, put together broader impacts proposals that are really going to be uh, strong and also meaningful, right? Not just, you know, fluff. Yeah, I think that's the key is that meaningfulness. I would like to think that these proposals that include this kind of stuff do get funded more. Fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> well, I know, I know that, I mean, I, I've heard from friends who are sitting on panels that it, there have been proposals that have very good science proposals that have not gotten funded because their broader impact sections were terrible. So and, and that's, I mean, that's horrible for the scientists, but it's awesome because <laughs> like you can, as a scientist, you know, when you consume media and it's about science, it's all so like far behind what the scientific community has already agreed on and moved past. Right. You know, and it's just because we're not good at nerds aren't good at talking to people. And it's (laughs) unfortunate because it just seems like we can't get our message out there. And that's the importance of these, you know, not just K through 12, but community, you know, projects as well that it sounds like you're doing to try to get, you know, science in front of people who think they don't know about science or or they don't like it or uh, yes. don't trust it. Yeah. Yep. And that's exactly. one of the reasons why I love, like, one of my favorite classes to teach here is my intro class. You know, a few of those students may go on to be majors in our department, which is wonderful, but mm-hmm. the rest of them are, like, econ and poli-sci majors. Yep. And I'm like, those are the kids I really want to get. This might be the exactly. only earth science that they ever have. But if they take something away from it, if they understand a little bit more about how the earth works, then I've done my job. Ex- that's... Yes, I have three journalism majors in my non-majors geology class right now. And I told them, I was like, you guys are the most important people that I'm teaching to in this room. And they're like, what? We don't even like this. And I'm like, no, that's why you're important. (laughs) You know, like, yes, I will change your mind. I keep telling them. I will convert you. Exactly. I know. I keep telling them I'm going to change their majors too. And they just scoff. But but at least maybe I'm changing their mind a little bit. And no matter what they go on to report about, you know, maybe they'll make their science reporter a better reporter because of what they took from this class that they just, you know, were forced to take in college. So, yeah, I feel very strongly about that. (laughs) Me too. So do you think that uh, doing like museum work in the past helped better prepare you to do outreach and give you a better tool set to approach outreach than maybe someone like like us that's had really no formal training? (laughs) I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't say I had a lot of formal training at the museum, but it was sort of like trial by fire. You know, and you just sort of learn. But I I mean, I guess it's not fair. I was around professional educators. um, And so I think I learned from them by osmosis. Um, (laughs) And then when and I think it also just put, you know, gave me a bug. So Harvard has a really wonderful natural history museum. And I I became friends with some of the educators there and did some programs with them um, while I was a grad student, which was super fun. And uh, I think for me, it's always been about balance. Like I enjoy what I do. I think it's interesting, but it's pretty esoteric, right? Like to be honest, okay. And- That's painful, but yes. (laughs) So I think if I only thought about that and only did that, I would find my professional life dissatisfying. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to be at an institution that valued teaching, because I feel like having that education component really balances my job satisfaction for me. Um, it gives me a sense that what I'm doing is not, you know, it's isolation and it is not totally meaningless. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that I am, you know, sharing knowledge and insight with others and helping others see the world in a different way. And I think that's really important um, in general and also really important for my own sort of sense of well being as a human. 
Yeah, it's nice to know you made some kind of impact other than in 50 years when some grad student finds <laughs> your thesis and says, oh, I can't do this. Somebody already did it. Totally, yeah. yeah. But, uh, and I, you know, I think that, like, part of it's just being stubborn. So, like, I taught more, I TA'd more as a grad student than I needed to because I wanted to. And I remember sort of arguing with my advisor a little bit about it. And mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, at that point, I had gotten an NSF fellowship, so he wasn't even paying me. So I was like, well, <laughs> I'm just going to do what I want. Thanks. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, like, working at the museum really did have, uh, you know, a pretty big influence on, on their – and I talking to my colleagues here, you know, this was a very competitive – position that I got and I think one of the things that set me apart was those education and outreach uh, lines on my CV you know mm-hmm. I was serious about it I wasn't just paying it lip service right exactly which frequently happens I think so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I I know that you did a TED Ed video so was that before no, yeah. or after you were at Williams that was while I was here I think it was during my first year I have a friend who I met when I was at MIT. Um, uh, we um, did like a science storytelling event uh, as part of the Cambridge Science Festival. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, he, this guy, Ben Lilly, was involved in that. He's super cool. And um, it's called The Story Collider. I don't know if you guys have heard this. There's a podcast. No. It's really amazing. No. You should check it out. Absolutely. Story Collider. So uh, Ben and I um, did a Story Collider event together, and uh, he also works for TED. Um, and so he sort of nominated me to do a script. So the way it works is that you can nominate yourself or someone else nominates you, and then they reach out to you, and you sort of pitch a script to them. And so what I pitched to them was um, basically how to become a fossil, <laughs> how to fossilize yourself. Right? <laughs> Um, and they thought that was hilarious. So then I wrote a script, and then they edited it a little bit, and then I worked with an animator who sent me a couple of drafts. We went back and forth to make sure that everything was, you know, accurate enough, right? It's an animation, so it's not going to be, like, perfectly accurate. But um, And then they did they did the voiceover. Sometimes the, um, the authors did the voiceovers, but for this one they wanted a very theatrical voice. <laughs> It's a very sort of corny video, but I, it's fun. I like it. Uh, I'm happy with how it turned out, and I'd love to do another one. I haven't really um, come up with a great idea. I have a couple good ideas, but I haven't really had the time to really formulate them and pitch them again. But it was great. I'm glad yeah, I did it. Yeah, it's a really interesting video, and we'll have it uh, linked in, in the show notes. Like you said, it was All produced right, right. in a very dramatic way. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's right. It yeah, made it exciting over the to watch. Top. <laughs> yeah, right. But I guess, right, their their audiences are like high school kids, so I, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and even though, you know, it's, what, about a five-minute video or something like that, uh, holding people's attention for five minutes when they have iPads and iPhones and things dinging all the time is still really hard. Totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. hard enough for my students. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Since, uh, you know, Shannon says, always says that she's the geologist and doesn't like technology. And I always say, I'm the technology guy that uh, I kind of do some geology on the side with it. Uh, I have to ask you, what kind of tech and tools and what, what things you use and how they've kind of influenced your daily life in terms of both the professional and non-professional life? Okay. So I made a little list 
should get prepared for this part. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I make lists. Um, I love it. <laughs> I use, I've used a lot of different sort of list and task things over the years. And I've never loved any of them. Right now I'm using Wonderlist, mm-hmm. um, which works pretty well. It's pretty simple, which I like. I also, uh, our admin got like a free sample of giant sticky notes. Last time she did like a office supply order. Okay. So I stole them from her. So I have a giant yellow sticky note right next to my uh, <laughs> desk, and I write on it in a black Sharpie. And actually, that's my new favorite to-do list, because I get the satisfaction of physically crossing off things with a pen. I have to admit, I had the App Store open searching for that, because I've... <laughs> but no, it's a physical giant thing. Giant <laughs> paper sticky note. Oh, wait. Analog technology. Analog, yeah. Um, and then I use, uh, I use Evernote. sort of keep track of things a lot mostly for teaching so articles that i come across or videos i try to incorporate a lot of multimedia into my courses and my assignments so i'll assign students radio lab podcasts um or videos to watch so i use evernote a lot for that um in terms google calendar sort of rules my life i've relied on that for a really long time um i use papers uh, which is, I think is only available for the Mac to manage my PDFs. And that's really great because it also now has a really nice um, citation manager as well. So I can use it for both managing PDFs and also as when I'm writing papers. And so they've actually, they did come out with a Windows version, but I wow. have heard absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, uh, I yeah. haven't either. I haven't invested yet because yeah, I haven't Yeah, it's a great to pay for it. Yeah. 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 yeah, I bought it in grad school and then immediately became reliant on it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's really essential. <laughs> it's really good. Um, I use, like, for, for, like, researchy stuff, I rely a lot on Photoshop and Illustrator and ImageJ because most of my data is images, right? Photographs of fossils. So I spend a lot of time working with sort of image processing. Um, I recently started using R, like a real person, (laughs) (laughs) like a real scientist. So that's been exciting. I use RStudio as my interface for R, which I really like. Um, And then for sort of work slash life stuff, I've recently started using a uh, app called Strides, which basically allows you to set goals and then Hmm. check in on them. So the goal could be a frequency. So most of mine are frequencies. Like I want to make sure that I'm getting into the lab three days a week. Okay. Right. Or I want to make sure that I floss once a week. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Like set the bar low and then you get like the reward for seeing that you've accomplished it. Um, and then the last one <laughs> that I love is seven minute workout. Okay. This is the best. So yeah. we are all busy. Oftentimes we don't have time to exercise, especially in the winter. Seven minute workout is the best because I usually I do two, so it's really like 14 minute workout, but still 14 minutes. <laughs> Everyone has 14 minutes and you feel like you accomplished something. Um, it's especially good when you're traveling for conferences or workshops yeah. and you don't have time to go to the gym or anything like that. So I've, I really love that. It's really helped, especially when I'm traveling a lot to make me feel like I'm not falling into total sloth (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate total sloth it's okay (laughs) it has its it has its place in life that's right that's right um this strides thing that's great like i think about like my my son's in kindergarten 
And, like, this is what this feels like to me. Because, like, he'll do anything if, like, he gets a prize at the end. And it's so great because it works for adults, too. Yeah. Yeah. It totally works. It totally works, you know. And I I love, I'm totally unashamed about how much it works. (laughs) Exactly. You're like, oh, look at the badge I got. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) I flossed this week. I'm so proud of myself. Whatever keeps your productivity up, you know? Yeah. It really does. And, like, I mean, I use OmniFocus for my task management. Yeah. And I, I really like it. And you do, every time you click either project completed or just even one of the little tasks hit the checkbox, you get this little dopamine hit and you're ready to oh, go totally. do the next thing. Yeah. The wonder, the Wonderlist one has this amazing dinging noise when you click something off. It's like, ding. I'm just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the drugs rushing my brain. That's right. (laughs) So I was curious for Evernote. Uh, I know Shannon uses Evernote. I still, I mostly manage things in folder database systems because Evernote has felt a little bit like a roach motel to me of it's easy to get (laughs) things in and never out. Yeah. (laughs) I was actually going to ask about that too. Like how do you, because I only make like lists in Evernote. I I haven't, I've, I've linked some pictures, but beyond that well i have folders and then i have like a chrome a chrome extension Uh, uh. um so it just you click the little elephant face in chrome and it clips the article or link or whatever it is and then you can tag it so i'm I'm downloading that right now it's like yeah so mostly i have like a i have a folder for each one of my courses since that's what i use it for most um and so i can just like automatically put things into the proper course folder and then usually at the beginning of the semester I'll look at it and be like what did I you know put in there over the last six months that might be interesting or, excellent so. Uh-huh. I like so that. it's kind of a way to keep your course material fresh exactly yeah, yeah. so do you have you tried the uh, the penultimate app where you can write notes and they sync into Evernote I have not used that yet but I've heard about it I feel like I need to buy one of their fancy styluses in order to really make it work but it's true. Uh, we both have one of the styluses oh, now. Oh, really? And how are they? Well, it's John interesting. Has, yeah, John has the new one. So I saw, I've gotten like emails about the new one. I'm yeah. like, oh, it looks really nice. Well, so we talked about this last week really, uh, really quick, <laughs> but I had bought the original one, and two weeks after I bought it, they announced the new one. Oh, no. And I emailed them, and I was like, oh, come on. And so they they swapped it for me. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Don't do this to me. Exactly. (laughs) I did that with my stupid Barnes & Noble nook, and then a week later, they came out with the one with the backlight. And, yeah. yeah. Technology marches on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always afraid to get a new new phone, because I'm like, as soon as I buy a new phone, they're going to tell me that there's another one coming out. It's awful. But the stylus is great, even mine, which is only slightly larger than John's. Um, but the new one is rechargeable, which is the best thing. But I really like it. I take it out in the field with me instead of, like, the old whiteboard that I used to take. So I've got my iPad, and so I'll draw stuff in penultimate versus on the side of the geology van with, huh. you know, with the whiteboard. So Right. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that'll be my next uh, my next toy. Yeah, it's kind of neat. I, I, what do you think, John? You've used it now for a little bit longer. Yeah, I, I like it, and I'm actually so I'm going through a couple of books right now to try to teach myself some things, and I'm doing all my notes in penultimate, 
as opposed to my normal way of Ooh. I would do it in a moleskin notebook and then I would take it to like staples, have them cut the binding off, and then I would scan it all and do text recognition on it. Wow. Uh, so I'm trying this to see how it goes because I like having everything, even though I do have, you know, four filing drawers full of that kind of stuff. I, uh, I am trying to get it all digital should something horrible yeah, happen Yeah, I just to the like physical. write on a, on a, like a notepad and just tear off the sheets and put them in the scanner. So do you have one of the, the fancy like scan snap scanners or... Just like the copy machine scanner okay, in the admin's yeah. office. Yeah. <laughs> like... But it, it doesn't do text rec- recognition, so. Yeah, one of those fancy scanners would be, I think that's going to be my next toy. Cause all it my might be mine, are... too. We'll see. Yeah. I, I use the scanner in the copy machine in the admin's office, and then I run text recognition in, you know, like Adobe Acrobat. Mm, right, uh, right. Which is kind of kind of slow, but I have a hard time spending $400 on a scanner. I know, but man, it'd be... It'd be good. It'd be good. Hmm. My Especially handwriting's worse than yours, funds. though, John. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I really feel bad for my students who have to read my comments. I'm like, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I still have grad students that come to me um, with my advisor's comments, and they're like, "Will you understand like yes. his handwriting?" Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> we used to like. We used to like get together over coffee and try to like interpret what our advisor had written on our papers. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's the worst. Um, I hope to fall into that. I mean, I feel like that's sort of one of those things you have to go through in grad school, though. So, totally. like, I'm gonna keep my you know word tracking to a minimum because that should just be one of the hoops you have to jump through. Is totally <laughs> understanding my 2 a.m. wine induced <laughs> comments totally. on your method section. Totally. Totally. <laughs> oh. There was a little bit that we uh, we about swore that one of the professors here had learned Arabic and was writing valid sentences as comments. They, they were not. They were indeed English, uh, but it was not anything remotely legible. Oh, good times. But now we know how they feel, right, when we're grading. It's just like, oh, it's absolutely yes. true. It's yeah. unbelievable being on the other side. <laughs> well, And student doodles are some of my favorite things on papers. Love. Oh, my God. I have a really good... Uh, illustrator in my paleobiology class this semester, and I just like can't wait to get her labs back every week. <laughs> she always draws. Last year, last week, she drew this like beautiful Dickinsonia fossil, which is an Ediacaran fossil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's she's great. This week's lab was like a paleobiology database lab, so she won't be only doing fun drawings. Oh, graphs, well, so. see, this is where Phoebe. This is where you work it in. So. I struggle with my students. You may not have this problem with reading directions. And so oh. always in the no, middle of a paragraph. My par- students can't read directions. Exactly. Either. So in the middle of a yeah. paragraph, I say, draw a cat next to question four. <laughs> oh, my God. That's and, brilliant. And so I give it as extra credit. And it's really funny because this group of students that I have now, I work at the same institution I got my PhD from. So I've had them for like the past three years. Every test right. I give now, they draw cats all over. Oh, <laughs> like, adorable. They're just like, we're just covering our bases. So, you know, just that's such a good idea, in. though, because they don't read the directions. No. And then they ask you questions and you're just uh-huh. like, there's a reason why I wrote instructions. Exactly. So like yes. somewhere towards the bottom, you sneak that thing in and, you know, it happened right, on two that. labs. And ever yeah. since then, they all know they read everything. I so, love that idea. Yeah. I'm stealing it. And if you do this, you should uh, tweet the results to us. <laughs> I will. It's, it's tweet so the cats. good. Yeah. All it's, the cat photos. <laughs> Actually, one of my students just got me as a thank you for writing his grad student letters. Like, he used to draw this cat on a surfboard. They all sort of came up with their own little, like, personal <laughs> cats. And he got me this actual, like, paint 
painting of a cat on a surfboard oh that he found that somebody did. So it was amazing. It was the best thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, we even had a student do our show art. Yes. Oh, yeah. Cool. One of my students did. One of my students that used to draw the cats did. Uh, yeah, the show art for our whole thing. So that's awesome. Yep. Yep. Well, well before we get uh, too awful long, uh-huh. uh huh. We seem to be linearly increasing in time with episode <laughs> numbers. So uh, we probably should of editing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we should probably go on to uh, Fun Paper Friday, which is everybody's favorite segment. <laughs> And we have the cowbell back. The cowbell's back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Phoebe, we had you pick the paper, and what on earth did we read about? <laughs> <laughs> so I picked this paper um, called Milk Bioactives May Manipulate Microbes to Mediate Parent-Offspring Conflict, which starts off with a lot of alliteration. <laughs> uh, and I picked it because uh, Katie Hind, who's the senior author, She's in the human evolutionary biology department at Harvard. I didn't know her when I was a grad student because I think she's relatively new, but she's on Twitter. Um, her Twitter handle is Mammals Suck. <laughs> and she's like, she just seems really cool and smart. And I, someone tweeted this paper last week um, and I saw it. I was like, that's crazy. So that's why I picked it. Uh, so, you know procrastinating on Twitter ends up teaching you all sorts of interesting things. It does. Twitter's um, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so basically it's uh, uh, her and a few of her students and they were looking at the role that um, different molecules in mother's milk plays not in nutrition of the baby, but in nutrition of the baby's gut bacteria. And so, you know, a baby's gut bacteria basically are are colonized um, by the mother, usually through vaginal birth. And that's sort of where you get your bacteria from. Um, and there's all these bacteria in the gut that, of course, help us digest all of our food. And so what they were looking at is the relationship between these mole specialized molecules in mother's milk that uh, babies don't get nutrition from, but the gut bacteria do. And so how the components in the milk uh, might be influencing the infant microbiota in a way that would actually shift the baby's behavior. Which wow. is crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's basically okay. like, mo and, but then also like the sort of battle where like the baby wants, you know, the baby wants the mom to like give them everything. Of course, the mom doesn't want that because that's bad for the mom. So this sort of battle between baby and mom that's being mediated by the gut bacteria of the baby, which is just crazy. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, so I just thought it was a really interesting paper. And it, again, sort of, we were talking about, like, thinking about things in a different way. It's like, well, you think of milk as being nutrition for the infant to grow. Well, maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's also playing this other role and, and the role that um, microbes play in our lives. I think in the last 10 years, we've learned so much about uh, how bacteria um, influence ourselves and the world around us, which is sort of more what I'm focused on. But I think learning about how bacteria influence our behavior is really interesting. It's really disturbing, actually. There's this part in it's this paper yeah. where he's talking about, you know, they're looking at mice and like mice that don't get this benefit from their mother are more nervous. Like yeah, they, they, they're like antisocial. Yes, yeah. antisocial and have anxiety-like behaviors and stuff. Like that's nothing you would ever think of being related to your bacteria. 
spectrum, totally. you know. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. that's crazy. It makes me look yeah. at my kid a lot differently. That's for sure. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's in your belly? Yeah. What is wrong yeah. with your gut, kid? <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those pit papers I saw. I was just like, whoa. My mind was just blown. Oh, it's so strange because I remember talking to my doctor when I had my son and, you know, she gave me some books and I read all this stuff about colic and how like colic is this thing right, that we just right. say, you know, babies are just colicky. They're there's just colicky. Nothing, yeah, there's nothing yeah. you could do about it. Yeah. But even some of these books that are five, ten years old were like, well, there are things you can do about it. It's not the books I read weren't specifically this scientific, but they talk about this in this paper, too, that these kids yep. who have been marked as colicky you know, have all these different kind of bacteria as opposed to kids that aren't. And that's yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, and, and they th- said that even some signals could come through saying, you know, whether the energy should be allocated to more like growth things or behavior developmental things, which was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's really disturbing to think that these things might rule your life way more than we ever thought you know what I mean I mean I think it's disturbing but it's also sort of as someone who thinks a lot about the evolution of life it's also like super amazing I mean and we think of ourselves as being humans and we know we're animals but we don't really think of ourselves as being animals but right really we're actually symbiotic unions between many different species of organisms um bacteria single-celled eukaryotes uh you know and then a mammal and I think it sort of makes you feel like you're even more part of the world. That's true. That's maybe more of like a positive spin on it. And that is, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that up. I I rode the the elevators in our building. We have a 15 story building. They are notoriously awful. So we were on a slow one the other day, and these biologists who are up on the 15th floor were talking about bacteria and stuff, and it was the most hilarious ride ever and it made me think about this paper (laughs) because she was talking about like she had just gone to this talk about these like kidney bacteria that she didn't know were there and then she went on to say how like she got to thinking about how our toilets flush really forcefully in this building so now (laughs) there's all this other bacteria (laughs) like oh my god she's like i'm sure some of it's good for me so that's okay (laughs) yeah the best elevator ride i've ever had I think but there's it made a Mythbusters on that, where they did the, like toothbrushes and oh, yeah. with yeah. toilets flushing and aerosolizing yes. fecal coliform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I, I worry about my cat licking my toothbrush more than anything. But. <laughs> did, you, did you hear that? Was it Radiolab did a piece about like the cat? There's like some parasite that lives in like cat yes. uh-huh. poop it's that toxoplasmosis. Like, makes you crazy. Yes, that oh, one. Oh, my yeah. God, that blew my mind. Um. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up because that also blew my mind. There was like, it wasn't a front line, but it was something like that about this guy who thought about this. And it has the same sort of, um, like the same sort of behavioral things. Like they say that right. like people who have this toxoplasmosis, which is like most people that have cats, um, have these sort of like anxiety behaviors and stuff that aren't necessarily and antisocial behaviors that aren't as prevalent in people without toxoplasmosis. Crazy. <laughs> And, like, everyone thought this guy was crazy who came up with this idea, but now, you know, I mean, this paper is pretty well accepted, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's becoming way more accepted. That's, it's a really strange, it's not how we think, just like you said earlier. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And also, before we wrap up, uh, we actually do have a little bit of listener feedback. from our last show (laughs) Uh, yeah so our last show was on the tides and 
we had lots of words that were more astronomy based that we did not know how to pronounce. Yes, I think syzygy was my my best guess. Yes. All right. So we have actually our friends over at the Orbital Mechanics podcast that do you know all these space related things sent in. Uh, how to pronounce this word correctly. In fact, when I got the email, it said, I pulled over while driving to send you this. (laughs) Oh, wow. We needed to be corrected so badly. (laughs) So here it is. You guys were actually really close. It's pronounced Syzygy. Syzygy. All right, so thanks, Ben, for that feedback. And (laughs) uh, before we put the final wrap on and tell people how to get a hold of us, is there anything else you'd like to add, Phoebe? Uh, I just want to say thanks. This is super fun. And thanks for inviting me on the podcast. And uh, maybe I'll do it again sometime in the future. It was great. We'd love to have you back. This was a super great conversation that I think is really important for us to have. So, Yes, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. We really enjoyed it. And where can folks find you if they want to get a hold of you on Twitter or anything like that? Uh, My Twitter handle is at Phoebe Fossil, P-H-O-E-B-E Fossil. Um, and you can find me um, at the William, Williams College Geoscience website as well, my research page, where you can learn more about what I do with my tiny fossils. All right, so we'll link all of that in for you at the bottom of the show notes. And as always, you can find us at don'tpanicgeocast.com or on Twitter, we're at don'tpanicgeo. And definitely send in any questions or anything you want us to pass along to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Geo Lehman, and Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. Thanks for listening, and remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 